This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on December 7, 2019 with Rick Lewis, author of Confident Under Pressure, The Hidden Advantages of Stress. Rick Lewis is a motivational speaker, thought leader, author, comedian, and entertainer par excellence who delivers a world-class presentation for meetings and events of all kinds. In the world of meetings where attendees have seen it all, Rick is the ace in your meeting hand, a fresh, surprising, and delightful experience they never saw coming. He makes his living by putting leaders, executives, and organizational teams into challenging situations to help them see the habitual ways they respond to stress. He then offers unique guidance in the practice of stress production, rather than stress reduction, revealing how to make a dynamic turnaround, an attitude of yes to stress. His book, Confident Under Pressure, weaves colorful personal stories, recent neuroscience, the research of human performance experts, and the inspiration of leading business executives into a compelling and lucid argument for moving towards stress, conflict, and change in order to become more creative, effective, and happy in life on the way to making our highest contribution in the world. The result is an eminently readable and practical book that anyone can use at home, on the job, or in one-on-one relationships. Rick Lewis, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, it's great to have you back. And um, we Conversation will... with you guys is always fun. Oh, thank you. Um, well, mutual. Yeah. But um, as we usually do with returning guests, we are going to start off by inviting you to sort of keep us up to or get us up to date with whatever it is you've been up to in the most recent years since our last conversation. So um, I know that you've been living near the ashram of your teacher, um, um, which is, I think, relatively new in these last few years. Uh, Anything else that we should know about any new projects? New Mm -hmm. books, hint, hint. (laughs) <laughs> um, it seems like I've always got a bunch of book ideas, way more book ideas than I can possibly get to. Mm-hmm. Writing is always uh, in my attention, ideas for communicating things in a new, interesting way, so I'm always, always writing. I actually have, um, and I can re- remind people at the end here, but I have a project called Games for Confidence, which I mentioned in the talk last night, mm-hmm. which is a, a series of exercises that I put out weekly mm-hmm. to a subscriber base. That And that's been really fun, very interesting to share some of the provocative getting out of one's comfort zone exercises that mm-hmm. I use to what I call keep my edge um, and sharing that with people and getting very interesting responses and engagement from people 
who are mostly professionals in the world for events that I do. That's where most of the sign-ups come from. Mm -hmm. And them pinging me back going, I tried this, and here was the result. And um, very, very often, those messages, the, the flavor of those messages are surprise. That people are so surprised and invigorated by how taking a small little intentional action in a certain direction can have such a big effect mm -hmm. in their lives. So that that's one thing that's um, very much of interest to me. I'm, I'm very much enjoying mm -hmm. and I'm looking for ways to expand that platform. For uh, I'm, I'm actually looking at an online membership site which would allow people to, to dialogue Sort of like a Patreon or something like that, where, where people no, would subscribe? No, not, not quite that. Um, it's actually, um, it's sort of like there's, there's a, a new platform out there, which is sort of like your own Facebook group, but you don't have the distraction. It's like a private Facebook. It's a private yeah. Facebook where uh, you can have okay. posts and people exchanging and liking stuff and highlighting things, mm -hmm. um, but around a specific topic. Yeah, so you get to just focus on, okay, what does it look like to consistently step outside my comfort zone and consistently increase my level of competence in my life because I'm willing to stretch. Mm -hmm. And people get to have that conversation without, you know, ads and feeds and yeah. all sorts of other stuff so, coming in. So. so does this work that you're describing uh, come out of uh, uh, the work surrounding your latest book, Confidence Under Pressure? Is that um, is it kind of a natural follow-on or is this a, uh, a new direction? Well, it, it, yes and no to the new direction question. Um, all the books that I've written, including the ones that are more spiritual practice focused, mm -hmm. Perfection of Nothing and You Have the Right to Remain Silent, as well as then the two more geared towards business professional books, Seven Rules You Were Born to Break and Now Confident Under Pressure, they all deal with the same topic, which is how does one become more present to oneself and in the process of becoming present notice how avoidance strategies predominate in behavior to the extent that life becomes limited mm -hmm. and, and shrinks down because unconscious avoidance strategies are are in play yeah I mean uh, and, and it seems to me that um in, in in the book um, you just mentioned your latest one, Confident Under Pressure, you have there's a range of ways in which that avoidance manifests. Sometimes it's quite subtle, and it's helpful to have a sort of spiritual and meditative practice to reveal that mm -hmm. level of subtlety. But then there's also the gross levels of uh, you know, I see someone on the street and I turn my face away, or um, or whatever it happens to be. Well, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting conversation because gross and subtle all depends on the perceiver. Like yes. so often, mm -hmm. we see something in someone and it's so glaring mm -hmm. to us as an outside observer, yeah. but to the person themselves, they have. It's a blind spot. Right. They have no clue what's going on. Mm -hmm. So some form of contemplative, introspective, self-reflective practice is essential 
to begin to reveal to oneself these areas that are in our blind spot. And they, they could be quite gross to everybody else, yeah. but we don't see them. So I think, I think you can get around the necessity for some form of self-reflective practice mm-hmm. to reveal these areas because that's the, by, very, by definition we don't see them ourselves, mm-hmm. even if they manifest in a way that's pretty dramatic. And now, one thing that I find interesting about the the work that you're doing and what you're offering, uh, particularly around these kinds of exercises that you can do to push against these habits, is that it seems to represent a um, a different phase of work than what's often offered up with meditation practice, which is just be present to what's happening, don't try to do anything. Right. And we see and we observe and we become aware of the landscape of our inner world and to some extent just becoming aware causes uh, some shifts of behavior just because you have right. um, a, a greater domain of choice but it seems like you're getting at some of the stickier uh, bits of avoidance that pepper our inner landscape and that you're offering the possibility that it is that you can actually take steps to push against that energy and something will happen, something interesting will happen. And, that's, right. and so I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more in terms yeah, of... Yeah, that, that's also a very interesting conversation because there are schools of thought around self-observation practice, including in Red Hawk's book, if you read his fantastic book, Self-Observation. Um, you know, I've heard so many people comment it's the, the very best elucidation of the self observation practice they've ever run into and he emphasizes in the book don't try to change things just observe because if you're if you jump to change prior to fully observing what you're dealing with you're going to be changing the wrong thing or working mm-hmm. on aspects of things that are kind of decoy um, issues and I actually asked him about this one time, about the book, and I, I asked him about the need to actually take some new action, and he he admitted that absolutely there's a certain stage in which that becomes very important and essential to to act differently. And I hope I'm not, I don't think I'm misrepresenting him mm-hmm. in that conversation we had, but so the the whole this book confident under pressure kind of deals with this area of what i've sometimes called disruptive mindfulness which is you have to be aware of these patterns but pure awareness in and of itself on your cushion isn't necessarily going to shift the physiological habit we get into routines, things we do in a certain way, and it's embedded in our bodies, in our cells, the way we move, the way we talk. And without actually taking, making the effort to shift those external behaviors, we can, we can develop a new relationship to it on the inside, but it's sort of like a hamster wheel that the hamster's on and the hamster jumps off. The wheel's going to keep turning for some time. Mm-hmm. And the, the process of uh, disinvesting from some of these habits that have momentum 
action can be very useful to pull the plug mm-hmm. on a, a momentum of our... Or would you make a stronger statement that, I mean, action is uh, a necessary ingredient to shift that functioning? I mean, it's not... And the reason I say this partly is because um, there, everyone who gets involved in spiritual practice has run across the canonical meditator who's meditated for 30 years and is frustrated that you know they, they've hit a wall or that nothing seems to change. Right. And it seems that part of the diagnosis of that is that, in fact, it's not sufficient just to simply be aware right. um, unless... You know, one just wants to be completely accepting of the uh, functioning yeah, yes. of, of one's organism as they find it, but to take action is to liberate a kind of energy. Absolutely, and and that is so. That's the one of the core principles of confident under pressure, because particularly in relationship to confidence, we we all develop stories early in our lives about what won't work, can't happen, uh, what I'm not able to do, and these come from past life, uh, from uh, early life experiences as well as things we're told, things that are fed to us by our parents or our teachers or our surrounding, and we take on a set of limits that we develop a lot of fears around. Well, one, well I mean, related to this, one of the points you make in the, in the book is is that kids are born confident mm-hmm. right and and so what you're just now enumerating is the ways in which that gets undermined or a habit around right. that gets created and, and to say they're born confident you know confident is sort of an umbrella word we use to what kids are born into is curiosity exploration experimentation action movement and all of those together um, translate into con- what looks like confident behavior mm-hmm. but it's not confident in the sense that a child says well I'm gonna I'm gonna be outgoing and I'm gonna be courageous here that mm-hmm. doesn't even enter their mind they are naturally investigative engaged and from the outside as an adult we'd look at it and go oh that that kid is quite confident but confident isn't actually the right word mm-hmm. okay. in that Context because they're just naturally being human. They're naturally being a uh, outward moving, relationally based being. But that, but that's kind of the point here. It seems to me is that is that you're you're, you're actually making a statement about or an assertion about human nature, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you're saying that that. I mean, uh, another way to put it is that you're saying that everyone has the capacity to manifest in that way. Yes. So that's and th- and then and then you go into the uh, description of the ways in which that gets uh, undermined and right. um, buried, as it were. Right. So um, so continue that discussion about about what you know. I mean, it, I think people understand generally how um, early impressions can generate the context for stories that we later can see have these have the consequences of uh, um, constraining that curiosity, exploration, etc. 
Um, how else do you, would you describe this? Um, some of the other uh, factors that um, are at play in this uh, well, in, process. In, in the book, actually, someone who's a friend of mine who I interviewed on this is writing a book. Um, I think the title of his, the working title of his book is called Being Human, and he's a psychologist, and he describes what he calls intrusive feelings. And intrusive feelings are emotional components that arise and get triggered when we are in a situation that reminds us of some kind of old, old trauma. Mm -hmm. This is not conscious, of course, mm -hmm. but a, an association with a traumatic event gets triggered. And because we don't want to again feel the way we felt when that trauma was present, we have to avoid that person, that situation, that circumstance. We have to find a way to steer around it in order to avoid the intrusive feelings that come up when we engage with that thing. So intrusive feelings, I think, if I'm remembering properly, he says, um, I'm trying to remember what the three intrusive feelings are. Shame is one of them. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be able to recall them. I should be able to. But so when these feelings get triggered, it's mm -hmm. all unconscious. So we steer clear mm -hmm. of these circumstances without, without even knowing we're doing it. And many people, and I work with people all the time, professionals, I work with people in coaching um, arenas, and it's very common that people talk about as they get older, their options seem to get more and more limited. They have less range of... Mm -hmm feeling like they have less, fewer options or alternatives or choices in their career or um, other aspects of their life. And when these intrusive feelings are constantly pushing up against our, our daily life, and the more we avoid, unconsciously avoid these situations that trigger the intrusive feelings, the more our belief that these situations are bad or dangerous, the more that belief grows. Mm -hmm. So every time we avoid the situation, it expands a little, it gets a little bigger, and we give up a little of our sense of agency, capacity, and competence. We're just, we, we pull back a little more, and we're now in this situation where not only can we not, say for example, talk to a redhead, Maybe we had an experience as a kid and some woman came up who had red hair and shamed us for picking something off the grocery store shelf. And mm -hmm. now we have an association with people with red hair. I mean, literally, this, this kind of thing happens, but we're not aware of it. And so we unconsciously avoid people or feel uncomfortable when we're talking to people who have red hair. And then there's somebody who is a clerk in a store who has red hair and we find ourselves avoiding the whole store because that person and, and so like this these associations expand when we're unconsciously avoiding things 
and our domain of engagement shrinks. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller because we're not willing, we're not aware and willing to confront the presence of those intrusive feelings and move forward anyway because and this, is where it com- this is where it comes back to the necessity for action because unless we prove to ourselves that our limits or our sense of danger or threat are actually unreal, unless we prove to ourselves that that is untrue, then we don't get a new life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's, that's why moving toward these things is essential because you can sit and be aware of this in meditation but if you don't physically get up and then walk into that store that it scares you to go into, then you don't prove to the actual physiological mechanism you live in that, oh, this is actually okay. This mm-hmm. is not a threatening place to be. So, 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 I mean, you're pointing to the, to the importance of bodily experience here. Yes. And that's why um, action is, um, it's not just mental action, or even necessarily emotional action, although that that expands the realm and brings in the body, Mm -hmm. at least implicitly. Uh, But but, but yeah, it is body, it's interesting because it it feels like it's, it's, the energy is located in the body, the the avoidance is, uh, arises in a sense, it's like this energetic formation that whether I think about it or not, it's there. And Absolutely, it's totally body body based. And and <clears throat> I, I guess the question I have is, or, or, or maybe I'll, I'll be more of an assertion. The way of what, the way of experience this is that it's it's more of an alchemical process that we're talking about because it's not it's not like I prove to myself at a cognitive level that it's safe. It's literally the going through of a shifts the energy, shifts the nature of that energy, shifts the nature of that uh, 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 moment of avoidance such that it doesn't present in the same way uh, again. It just it's, it's Well, it may, it may present in the same way internally, but it doesn't then dictate one's actions because the proof that we're providing to ourselves is that our sense of anxiety that arises in in certain situations is that it's accurate and unless we prove by moving into the situation and seeing that nothing bad happens that's what that's how we prove to ourselves that oh that is actually inaccurate so it may present in the body the same way it could for the rest of our lives every time we go toward a, a certain type of person we might feel anxious but then we get the information we get the understanding that that is not an accurate, that's not mm-hmm. worth following the, the dictates of that yeah, anxiety. And I, think, and I think operationally we're saying the same thing. Uh, I mean, the, the, the effect is the same. And I, I've, sometimes I've heard the metaphor of discharging. And, mm-hmm. um, and discharging is, again, you know, it's, it's almost like I, the analogy is like if I fold paper, you know, up, uh, and unfolded, the creases are still there. There's still sort of like a uh, uh, a trace of that uh, perception, like of seeing the redheaded person. Uh, but the charge associated with it is uh, very different, such that it doesn't have the binding force that it had before. 
and so I can be aware of the arising of the possibility, but the gravity of that arising now is very different than it uh, <coughs> was previously. And the only reason I distinguish this as a cognitive process is that um, I'm looking at the distinction between therapeutic models where you're describing, you really have to go through and take action to demonstrate to yourself the, uh, the unreality of the uh, energetic formation. Some people speak about uh, uh, cognitive therapy where you sort of walk through in your mind a scenario and there are claims made that that is uh, uh, an effective way of approaching these kinds of things and I think there are some therapeutic models that are, are built around that. Sure. It just, it doesn't, in my experience, it doesn't seem to have the same heft as uh, actually being in action. And, and that, that's, that's probably why I'm dwelling on this distinction because it really seems like uh, it's loosening, you know, it's like stretching a, 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 a cramped muscle, you know, that over time, you know, the, uh, I may have the memory of the cramp, but it's like my range of motion is now much different because I've put attention and energy at a physical level right. into the process. It always seems useful to come from as many angles as you yeah. can on things, and it reminds me just of you know Gurdjieff's work um, talking about the three centers and how to be a harmonious, full being. All centers need to be firing and active and and working together, as opposed to one center dominating the conversation of your life. And um, so when you you come at it from you know the cognitive mental direction as well as moving center body direction feeling direction when you when you come at these things from all from three, all three yeah. angles you're in the best position then to be a responsive being a fully responsive individual right um I, so so the it seems to me that the that one uh way to or another way to formulate this is you were using the word action um, and and we need to remember that that action can take place in each of these centers uh, that Gurdjieff uh, pointed to in other, right. words, sure. in other words there's emotional action right. there's physical action and uh, uh, mental and intellectual action uh, in, a, in our culture I think it's it's so easy for people to get seduced into thinking that Intellectual, intellectual or mental action is the only realm in, uh, that we have to, that we're inclined to pay attention to um, when we're going to quote fix a problem or something like that. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and and so um, and so meditative practices that that necessarily, for example, involve the body um, redirect the attention. To this realm where action can have effects that I think for a lot of us, certainly for I speak for myself, for my own uh, history of practice, is that is that you know as you say, actually having my body do things um, um, can be in incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there was a uh, I used to have this. Um, 
I had this issue with my mother, who's a who's a telephone operator. She worked for the phone company for for decades, and early on, she was a telephone operator. And I had and I have these distinct memories of sh- my mother might be yelling at me about something, and then she uh, the phone would ring, and uh, she'd pick up the phone, and from this place of vituperation <laughs> towards me hello right. how can I be you know <laughs> you know this, this completely phony um, you know emotional manifestation oh, or what funny. looked to me as a kid like a phony uh, I mean maybe my mother was better than I thought about this I don't know <laughs> but but it, uh, but but one of the ways that my teacher helped me to um, take action in this in in resolving this was I took um, of course I'm old enough to remember the old rotary phones because that's all there was when I was a kid and um, so we took I took an old rotary phone out onto the uh, driveway and took a hammer and pounded it into into small pieces <laughs> and um, and was aware of the of the energy associated with that um, uh, that that was being triggered um, with this device. So um, so that action it's it's not that that that, that was like I don't know uh, suddenly I'm I'm entirely liberated, but it was a demonstration to me that I could take action in this realm where I had this the impression food of falsity and I could I could simply be physically present with this device that I had that I had emotionally um, associated with um, um, the stuff that I found um, incredibly frustrating mm-hmm. and realized that there there was another way to um, express in this area so so that's an i mean I, I throw that story out there just just as as an example of of how practice works i don't know if you have any comments on that um, if you do that that's great but what what strikes me as as interesting and we haven't really touched on it yet in this conversation is the is the distinction between this kind of I don't want to just say psychological healing, um, but but um, how do we in the West in the early 21st century conceive of spiritual practice? Can, how do we conceive of of the project of spiritual self-inquiry um, without? Bringing in the sorts of things that you're pointing to here, I think that you know when 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 different Eastern spiritual traditions came to this country in the mid 20th century, I think there was there was an idealization of what spiritual work and practice and um, effort entailed. And it was usually associated with very with a projection of these high spiritual realms and very very mentally focused, I think. Mm-hmm. 
And here we're talking, you're talking about stuff in your book, Confident Under Pressure, that's um, <laughs> way more, way more down to earth, it seems to me. Well, we so speak about that, that. Yeah, we keep saying confident under pressure without saying the subtitle, which is actually the really important part of the conversation, which is discover the hidden advantages of stress. Mm-hmm. So, Stuart, when you were talking earlier about the idea of discharging um, something that's got uh, a charge for us, um, the conversation in my mind around what I understood from my teacher in relationship to what spiritual practice is, is one where we, we shift out of the mindset of trying to get rid of certain kinds of energy and feeling that we've labeled as bad and wrong or non-spiritual in our culture. So being angry or Mm -hmm. being jealous or being afraid. These are all things that we just generally we don't want to we want to get away from those and if they arise we want to figure out how to resolve them and get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And that can be often the focus of you know some therapies more and more it's acknowledged in therapeutic environments that that's not you know that that's not the focus but the idea of the book is that not only do we not need to get rid of these feelings they can be very useful fuel mm-hmm. on the path because all forms of arising energy are have some power and some force associated with them and if we can learn to redirect those arising energies, they can serve an aim that we have rather than attempting to sit long enough or work everything out in advance so that we're now this calm, neutral force that nothing impacts or touches and we don't get aggravated or we don't get energized we're very uh, we're full of equanimity all the time oh I can see so so by arising energies you're referring to these these um, often experienced at first as unwanted um, uh, impulses being stimulated by often external circumstance but but other times Presumably by internal reactions to even even stuff happening internally. So that's that's interesting because uh, uh, I wasn't quite sure what you meant by arising energies. Well, I, so I'll give you an example of how. And since I've been on the show before, if some people happen to have heard our past conversations, they might know this story. But to recap briefly, my primary work is as a keynote speaker for corporate events where I do an act where I dress identically to the serving staff, I pose as a server without the guests knowing it, I pose as a server during the meal, and um, a waiter who becomes more and more inept, odd, and eccentric um, over the course of the meal. So throughout the meal, people are watching this escalate and having um, reactions to the bad service, judgments about what I'm doing, and are getting, are experiencing some degree of their habitual relationship to stress or a situation that's not going the way they expected, mm-hmm. they're having this go on to them. They're, they're having this reaction to this bad service. 
So because I'm doing this consciously and intentionally, I know they don't know that I'm not actually a server, but what I'm at the effect of mm-hmm. is the the stares, the judgment, you can feel it coming off of people. So I'm getting this this response from people which has to do with their being irritated or upset or unhappy with me. The arising energies. The arising energies of them. And I've done this thousands of times now, but there isn't a single time I do it that I am not affected Mm-hmm. by what all these people are thinking of me. Right. Now, I know it's not accurate because I'm just playing a part, and I know that they will know that later on. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, I am at the effect of feeling what gets triggered for me are my childhood associations with doing something bad, being wrong, and the shame I feel about causing other people to feel this way. So, if I, if I were to ask someone else to do this, if I were to say, okay, this is the deal, and I want you to pose as this waiter or server, other people, they would feel the same way. A lot of people would say, no, I could never do that. A lot of people would say, I, no, there's no way I could, I just, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't take that on. And the point is, I feel the way they do. What arises for me is an avoid, a, a desire to avoid that situation. Mm-hmm. But w- now when I do it, I find, because I've done it so many times, I know that even though internally my reaction is to avoid that situation, I can handle it, they can handle it, and that it actually produces an energy in the room of a kind of presence because when there's conflict present in our lives, conflict is like a protein source for attention. Mm-hmm. When there is something that's not fitting and not right, there's some friction, it gets our attention. It, it brings us into the present moment. So when we avoid these situations that at any degree of possible conflict, we're actually starving ourselves of a nutrient that our being needs in order to be more fully present in our life. So this circumstance I set up as the waiter creates this friction between me and others. My, my script, my persona says, avoid this, don't go there. But I know from experience that when I'm willing to go there and actually nurture this conflict situation, if I'm doing that with mindfulness, when it comes to when I finally reveal that I'm not actually a waiter and now we're going to talk about how you handle stress in your life, the energy of that interaction all gets ported over to a degree of presence and a sense of possibility for people that serves us all very well. Mm -hmm. So that's a very different dynamic than trying to avoid that feeling of anxiety, avoid conflict, avoid what comes up in me when I'm being this way with people and I'm getting I'm at the effect of their judgment. So we're now using all everything that arose in this situation for the potential of change, 
transformation because there's a lot of energy present in these these internal constructs, these issues. So, so the book's about the idea of using stress intentionally and learning to introduce small elements of disruption in our lives in order to activate a level of presence and a level of potential that is heightened when we allow this energy into our hmm. into our experience. So, so you use the word friction, and and that's um, that brings for me the memory of my teacher, my spiritual teacher, Robert Ennis, um, discussing the the indispensability of friction to um, self inquiry. Uh, and the spiritual process. So, right. so, 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 in a sense, that's I'm hearing that as the link between the um, highfalutin aims and and projections about what being spiritual or religious or whatever um, uh, should mean, and what in practice it can actually mean to. Um, to see the context that we're actually creating for ourselves moment to moment. Not because we had the deliberate intention to do that, but f- as the result of all, of all these moments from our past that, um, that we haven't digested. So being present to friction is, um, strikes me as being, as, as being the key thing. The, the, the invitation that it sounds like you offer people in these, you know, as in your role is to realize um, how being present to, to the uh, unpleasant manifestations of others, as Gurdjieff might have put it, um, has, has this, has this um, potentially powerful effect um, to see. Yes. Well, it, I, I wanted to just add in the, uh, you mentioned uh, Gurdjieff's um, notion of being willing to be present to the displeasing manifestations of others towards oneself and how Gurdjieff as a teacher was notorious for stepping on people's corns. Right. But spiritual teachers in general uh, when they are creating circumstances or creating conditions by which people can be more present or to have a reflection of themselves, do what you're describing. And often, sometimes, uh, one will hear teachers lament that they're taking on the negative manifestations of their students because they're consciously triggering the mechanical behavior in people around them. Uh, and that requires a, a dramatic kind of presence in order not to be consumed by that. Which I imagine when you're engaged in this, and when you're getting all of this reactivity directed at you, you have to be scrupulously present not to, uh, as you say, you can see all the bubbling and all the invitations to uh, uh, sink into it. And so you have to be present to not get hooked. Right. But that 
attention and uh, it's like that attention brings you more to the moment so it's a, I mean, it's fascinating work that you're describing but it also is a model or an insight into how a spiritual teacher functions and why spiritual teachers when they are doing their jobs well are actually very annoying to be around <laughs> because their job isn't to let you settle their job isn't right. to make you comfortable their job is actually to uh, trigger these kinds of mechanical reactivities that we have such that we can uh, at least initially see them be present to their arising and ultimately get lots of practice on uh, how not to take the invitation to get hooked in by them right yeah I just I find that humor is a, an essential element in all of this it's like having a sense of humor about our our reactivity and um, humor in general like all all good humor is conflict based if you listen to a stand-up comic or any any kind of comedian what they're talking about are the dynamics of conflict internally in us and when a comedian um, openly acknowledges an internal disparity between two warring eyes or um, two points of view that's what makes us laugh is because we all try and hide that we try and hide the fragmentation of our personalities how you know in this situation where I wish I could think of a good example right now but um, a, a good oh, here's an example of a Mark Twain quote it goes something like this um, so if I can get it right it might be you know, someone will have to look it up but <laughs> I Mark Twain says, I thoroughly disapprove of duels. If a man were to challenge me to fight, I would quietly and lovingly lead him away by the hand to a quiet place and kill him. <laughs> and that's not exactly how it goes but you get it it's close yeah, yeah. enough that you're you're led into this frame where you're going yeah okay yeah that's right he's doing the right thing but then he throws in the, the human dynamic of the conflict within himself mm -hmm. and we laugh why why do we laugh at that it's because it puts us in touch with truth Mm -hmm. in a way that it feels delightful it's like oh my god you mean we can talk about this we can admit that this is actually so that I have these completely conflicting parts within me mm -hmm. and so that that degree humor creates a form of awareness that actually uses discomfort to put us at ease with ourselves so it's a kind of uncomfortable thing that a comic does. They're walking a line that people feel a little bit like, oh, really? You're going to talk about that? But what it does is it puts us, you know, collectively at ease as an audience. Because it releases tension. It releases tension. So, and I, I think that's what, when you describe what a spiritual teacher does, it's a form of humor. Mm -hmm. Like this, this kind of work with someone is a form of humor at least it's an invitation to have a sense of humor not like ha 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 but there's a disposition of practice because essentially all practice is conflict based all practice is about here I am at A and I want to be at B 
and what's represented in between are is that which opposes the way we would like to be or the way we would like to be able to manifest or show up. So inherent in practice, in the activity of practice, is conflict. You can't... Transformation is about conflict. It's about, I'm in one state and I would like to inhere in another state. And the resistance that's in between a and B is that which I have to work with. And, and then maybe another dimension of humor is that when you get, when you think you've gotten to the uh, goal state, it doesn't have any of the qualities that you thought it would. Right. Or the payoff. So right, 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 yeah. right, 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 right. And then the cycle right. begins again. That's right. Oh, that's funny. Well, the notion of friction is an interesting one because in uh, certainly in physics, friction is like work in action. Yeah, there, there's uh, there's assertion, there's resistance, and the uh, energetic interplay between the assertion and the resistance is the uh, is the friction, and yet that friction gives rise, I think, ultimately to the energy of resolution. That that that's how we. That's that's what I mean. That's why I, I like to use the word uh, alchemy because it's like I don't. It doesn't. It's such a visceral process when we go through this. Like if I, you know, to use a, a Gurdjieff example because this this comes up in uh, you know challenges I have in my work environment where you know uh, since I work as a manager, my job is pretty much to be distracted constantly, whether it's by emails or by people. Right. There's all these different situations and. Uh, Part of the reason, you know, I end up working long hours is because, you know, you kind of steal time at the beginning or the end of the day to right. do something that doesn't get interrupted in uh, uh, every uh, five or ten minutes. And so if someone comes into my office, the challenge is, like, uh, do I give them full attention? And I've been, I've noticed I've been bad about that. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll give like half attention or, you know, just sort of like sample just enough to like get the uh, uh, distraction right. out of my space. Right. But then I try to, you know, when I see that, I'll try to, you know, it just as a, a, a choice, say, I'm going to give this person full attention. And then it's like it um, uh, uh, transforms because then suddenly, like, there's this, like, a, a very different energetic situation. And even though there's the, the resistance or the, you know, I'm being pulled away from something or something like that, it's like that, that there's a juicy, juiciness that's present uh, that feels rich right. that wasn't there uh, uh, before. And it's because of uh, going against that grain or going against that uh, buffer, as to use a fourth-way term, that mm -hmm. wants to keep me isolated from that moment. So it's, it's but it's like I say, it's visceral. You know, it's like a, it's not a, it's not a, I can cognize it after the fact. Right. But the energy is real. And it's quite present, right? So, you were talking about, you know, we, we you, you, you keep almost describing some of the exercises that you've been uh, uh, crafting, and then we we uh, jump away into a highfalutin uh, uh, discussion. So maybe let's 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 go back to like give an example of um, some of the exercises that you've conceived of that are and and of, course, and of course for listeners we will. Um, um, with your agreement, uh, publish a way for them to get onto this list to receive these uh, sure. things on a weekly basis. Sure, yeah. 
Um, well, uh, so a simple example would be um, a weekly game, a week's game might be every day for the next week start three sentences a day with the words I love. Just put the words I love at the beginning of your sentence <clears throat> and then allow whatever follows to follow. So many of us are, we, we hold our cards, our feeling cards very close to our chest and we don't want to convey or show or admit what it is that we're passionate about or we care about or that you know really moves us. So the language of thinking, even in, I'm sure you experience this at work, if you're in a meeting, how often will people, you know, something will be said, there's a project that's being worked on, and then people will start chiming in, and they'll start their sentences with the words, I think. Well, I think we should actually delay this a week, because that will be, you know, more productive. Or, I think, we should rebrand this product because it's not having you know, the right effect that we need on our customers. So we're, f we're very happy to opinionate with mm -hmm. each other. But if someone stops and says, I love this idea because it, wake, you know, it wakes something up in me, it moves me and makes me feel more connected to this person or I love whatever I love gardening or I love my grandchildren. If someone makes a statement like that in the midst of environments where we really limit ourselves to very kind of cognitive intellectual exchanges, mm -hmm. it wakes everybody up. Yeah. Everyone immediately your attention immediately goes to a person who's a feeling person because there's so much potential in somebody resting in what it is that's bringing them alive and we pretty much we avoid doing that in this culture so if I think for most people if you examine your interchanges with people how often you start a sentence with the words I love or express something about what you really love that's that's not something we do very often so that's an example of a, it's a very little thing it's like how simple can you get? I'm going to start a sentence with these words, and I got to, and then I have to finish it. But it, it, I've had people, and this is one of many examples of, of games like this, where when you actually put it into action, like you were saying, if you just think about doing that, that's one thing. Yeah, well, I can you, do that. you get the concept. Like, yeah, I can do. Yeah, that. I can do it. That's easy. That's not going to do anything. Exactly. So that, that's what people would say, and then at the end of the week, you say, well, did you do it? Oh, well, yeah, no, I did it once. I did it once on Wednesday. And then the question is, well, why? Why didn't you actually do the exercise, even though in the moment intellectually you see, oh, I see how that works, I see how that could have value. But the actual act of saying to another person, I love, and then having to be present while they react to what you've just vulnerably shared and having to bear that they might not like it or they might have a criticism of it. That process to actually do it is a whole, that moves all sorts of stuff in our, in our practice life. So it's very small, yeah. very simple, but if, for those who actually follow through with it, there's, there's a profound experience around our 
ourselves, our expression habits. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a conversation with Rick Lewis, author of Confident Under Pressure, The Hidden Advantages of Stress. Rick Lewis is a motivational speaker, thought leader, author, comedian, and entertainer par excellence who delivers a world-class presentation for meetings and events of all kinds. His latest book weaves colorful personal stories, recent neuroscience, the research of human performance experts, and the inspiration of leading business executives into a compelling and lucid argument for moving towards stress, conflict, and change in order to become more creative, effective, and happy in life on the way to making our highest contribution in the world. The result is an eminently readable and practical book that anyone can use at home, on the job, and in one-on-one relationships. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a conversation with Rick Lewis, author of Confident Under Pressure, The Hidden Advantages of Stress. Rick Lewis is a motivational speaker, thought leader, author, comedian, and entertainer par excellence who delivers a world-class presentation for meetings and events of all kinds. His latest book weaves colorful personal stories, recent neuroscience, the research of human performance experts, and the inspiration of leading business executives into a compelling and lucid argument for moving towards stress, conflict, and change in order to become more creative, effective, and happy in life on the way to making our highest contribution in the world. The result is an eminently readable and practical book that anyone can use at home, on the job, and in one-on-one relationships. I'm laughing to myself because um, over the Thanksgiving holiday, we had a, a friend of ours who uh, passed away, and we were able to be present uh, both before his death and then uh, uh, sit with the body after. And so that happened in this holiday weekend. And just because of the nature of our, our practice, it's like you know, it was something that we tend to uh, approach with a sense of honor and a sense of, you know, so it wasn't, it didn't rise like uh, exceptional. It was just like this is what was presented to us. Well, it's, we have the habit of doing it. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but the, and the, created the habit of doing but it. But the point, the point of this is like when I was at work then on, on Monday, people come by and say, oh, how was your holiday? And then I had this choice. Right. Well, what do I say? You know, and with some people, you know, there were occasionally, you know, uh, when I, uh, I would say, oh, it's just fine. But uh, with a number of people, I would say, oh, it's really interesting because, you know, we had a, a friend pass away. And, uh, you know, and, and of course, when you, the minute you do that with, uh, uh, open up the subject of death in uh, right. American society, it's like, right. you, you got to basically be prepared for uh, right. at least a, a, a five-minute conversation, if not a longer one. Right, um, right. And, well, and a variety of uh, responses, too. Right. But, but what, what was interesting is that it, it, it that example for me was just kind of an ex- uh, uh, demonstrates to me that so where were the moments where I didn't choose to do that? Right. So basically, what I was doing was like withholding reality, or I made a choice to. Right. I, I made a choice to be to withhold, uh, and there 
maybe reasons for that and things like that but uh, it just like I, I made that choice and the other times where I uh, chose to uh, be open it at least served as a reminder to people that there's a different way to engage with death and mm-hmm. and that kind of conversation opens things up and uh, and sort of takes people to this place of uh, uh, things that are more important in life like right. the fact that right. most everything around us is going away so maybe we should you know accommodate them but the difference is stark you know it's like uh, I can I can just talking about it and then, so it's like these exercises you're talking about you, well you can you can think that it's fine to do but when you don't do it then uh, nothing changes and when you do it then suddenly a door opens that wasn't open before yes it's not just a door opening it's a liberation of energy like I think of these as um, it's sort of like the, you know, the, the principle on which the atomic bomb is based or is it nuclear energy anyway when you split an atom mm-hmm. the tiniest particle that well obviously they're tinier things quarks or something I'm not a physicist but anyway atoms are a very 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 tiny increment of matter and if you split that tiny tiny thing an enormous amount of energy is released it's very similar with our behavior Mm. we lock up huge amounts of energy in very small acts of um, withdrawal and refusal and resistance and when we actually are willing to put our attention on that small point of resistance and split it with small action we liberate a huge amount of energy and this is what this is what fascinates me about this work is that when you start to look for these little areas where we're holding out places we don't want to go you can find small little pockets that liberate tremendous amounts of life force well let me let me um, go back to that um, comparison I was making earlier between projections about spiritual practice and enlightenment and um, the Practices that you're that you're, for example, um, uh, advocating in the um, weekly email and in um, your books, um, it's like um, I think that it has been certainly when I first started doing spiritual practice and for decades after, enlightenment was this was this big black box with rays you know emanating from it or from around it or something like that and it's like oh and I'm supposed to be drawn to that and then find out what it what's there and you know I mean there's different ways you can configure it own it or inhabit it or whatever whatever um, achieve it but yeah 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 so um, but what I, I'm hearing you say is is um, it's kind of like in, in uh, Zen Buddhism there's the, the sudden enlightenment uh, philosophy versus the gradual enlightenment philosophy and, and if we're uh, going to use that um, comparison you're talking about even more gradual enlightenment in a, in, a, in, a kind of, in a kind of sense because I think I'm hearing you say that there are so many ways in which we have locked up 
vitality mm-hmm. um, in our bodies um, and in the, in all the the three centers of the, of the organism that um, it's it's um, essentially innumerable little um, steps that we take to release the locked up nature is that is that i mean yeah. comment comment on that and 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 if there's anything that comes up with regard to the uh, the enlightenment in the sky version i'd like to hear it well we don't that conversation isn't really followed through culturally about enlightenment right because you know there's the idea oh I want to be enlightened but mm-hmm. at base at least it seems to me <laughs> the the essential wish that underlies the idea I want to be enlightened is I don't want to be in conflict anymore I don't want to deal with conflict I don't want to have to um, face situations that are painful or difficult I want to be above all of that I want to transcend it all and it is actually in the details of navigating conflict, stress, resistance that the process of living and the process of life evolution itself occurs through that very process and Mm -hmm. through the embrace of that dynamic. So it's not different than enlightenment in, in one sense then is not different than Discovering what is it the hidden advantages of stress, as you put in your subtitle for your book, because that's the only way to um, unlock the energies that allow you to appreciate these things. What's the only way to be in relationship to the dynamics of evolution itself? So, so I mean, that's better said. Yeah, it sounds like you're 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 kind of making a statement about the nature of this realm of reality of being embodied uh, in a mm. animal form by its very nature is uh, an ongoing uh, navigation. Through it's a, messy, a it's difficult, yeah. it's confusing, it's chaotic. So, so enlightenment is, is not a cessation of stress, it's a cessation of the uh, reactivity of stress. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Which is, I mean, in a, a Buddhist sense, it's like the you know the four noble truths is you know that uh, starts with the, the notion that there is stresses like the condition of our uh, lives, and uh, the, that's that's what it means to be embodied and to you know be in a, a, a field of time where things change and go away, and uh, homeostasis is uh, always having to be guarded as a, as an organism, but. That doesn't mean our relationship to that. Our relationship to that can be one of peace, but that doesn't mean that the stress doesn't go away, right? Right. It, but we can use it. Yes. And I don't claim to know. I don't claim to know what enlightenment is. But from from everything I understand, from those who I don't even know how to we start talking about what that is or how to achieve that state it's almost pointless to, well, well but, yeah, yeah I, I, I would but what I from what I understand what would be the purpose of quote an enlightened condition but to be able to serve more perfectly reality or other beings it, Enlightenment. All of the above. The idea is that, in, in, as far as I understand it, enlightenment renders you completely available to 
reality evolution itself to, to serve uh, a process of unfolding, expanding, growing, becoming, mm -hmm. being, and uh, the more demands we have on reality that reality must be a certain way in order for me to participate with it, the less available we are to serve that process. So, so, so this is an interesting jump because this, uh, what you're describing here doesn't necessarily uh, uh, follow automatically from uh, uh, what you've described with competent under pressure and the hidden advantages of uh, you know uh, of, of utilizing stress because one can approach this kind of work. Uh, from a point of view of um, uh, a, uh, a belief in the reality of oneself, and you know that uh, you know this, uh, to fulfill myself purposes, obviously I want to feel better and things like that. So there's some very practical things that open up my world and uh, you know provide more presence. But you're now you're pointing to something that uh, goes beyond that, which is. What is the what happens to my relationship to myself in this process, and what does it mean to suddenly find oneself in service of reality? Because that suggests a relationship to something larger that I don't necessarily automatically see out of the um, uh, liberation of my uh, individual cramps. So, how do you make that? Uh, how do you see that? Well, I don't see those as being at cross-purposes at all. They're right. kind of a continuum. Yeah, but I want to see how you get from A to B. Well, someone has to start from, you know, someone who is essentially life-negative, who's unaware that they're life-negative, meaning they've got all a bunch of locked-up vitality, places they won't go, things they won't express that they feel strongly, uh, passions that they have that they don't pursue or follow. And that, that, to me, describes most of, most of us. Most of us have some degree of that going on in, in varying, uh, at varying levels. So the first step on this path of actually embracing and being in relationship with reality is to be in relationship with what I call myself, my, my ego, my package over here. So unless I can begin with a full acceptance and a full exploration of everything that's arising here in my, my individual package, that's the first step to me then once I can internally accept what arises in myself, my anger, my fears, my shame, my lust, my greed, my jealousy, you know, when I start to admit that stuff is there, and I can actually be in relationship with it. And by being in relationship with those energies consciously, I can then port that energy to aims and goals that are worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So that process is what's going to open me up next to seeing that, oh, what's going on in Rob over there? And this thing I see him do where he has this reaction to something, I can actually also be with that in him mm -hmm. and help him see that that thing that comes up for him is not the enemy for him. He could actually be with that and use that and I can accept it in him because first you know, I've accepted it in myself 
and then we move to accepting manifestations like this in groups and then in the weather and you know it, it expands but it has to start personally mm-hmm. this this willingness to go okay i i take everything that's here and that, that this is the basis of of tantra this is what tantric practice is it's a full embrace of what is a, of what is everything that arises in our experience and the willingness to transform it and work with it for the purposes of serving what's wanted and needed so, in a wider frame. So, so what I'm hearing from you is that uh, the, the question of service, the question of being of service is a natural, uh, a natural condition of our being and uh, the, the more that we free ourselves up from the energetic knots that reify the personal realm, the more that we participate. The, the, pers- the personal reactive yeah, realm. The personal reactive realm, but the more the, the more we loosen that and make that energy available, then we uh, we begin to just naturally participate in a transpersonal realm. And, yes. and that it's not something that yeah. we have to do, it's just an effect of this process. So, yeah. so, so well, Very well said. Okay, so, so you're not, so I, I, I'm trying to make the connection there because uh, it, it's, it's like, uh, it's not a act. It's not an issue of morality, or it's not an issue of right behavior. It's that behavior is that that behavior will unfold unfold naturally as a consequence of doing this uh, uh, work at the individual level. Yes. Okay. So, so one of the things that's come up a couple times in this conversation is, you know, you've focused on. Um, a lot of the discussion has been about the the um, habitual blockages to expression, and um, and usually that I mean you went through a list a moment ago, you know lust, greed, blah blah blah, and um, and I think that's one of the ways in which. Um, it's not. I mean, it's accurate, absolutely accurate. But I also, um, you know, in my own experience, have had. I mean, one of the, the, the maybe the biggest blockage for me. One way it would manifest was an absolute aversion to receiving positive attention. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and. You know, without going into this, a story to explain how I, you know, I don't know, like 10 years ago, I had this like 24-hour experience of, oh, I know exactly the experience of early childhood that caused that uh-huh. and, and sort of raveled through the, the, um, the consequences that I experienced in my life subsequent to that. But, um, but I think that a lot of people wouldn't see that. Um, I mean, it's fear. It was it was fear of it was based on fear of not getting the attention of love that I felt like I needed, and so attention in general became problematic for me. Hmm. And so, um, uh, um, and I, d- I don't know that I would have resonated in seeing this, you know, in, in seeing the. Um, 
the hidden advantages of stress years ago. I don't know if I would have resonated with the list of lust and greed and um, uh, envy and, and, and all that stuff. But I guess I'm just wanting to inject into the conversation this sense that um, uh, there are realms like fear that don't look um, selfish or negative at first because I was pulling myself back from the world. I was hiding from the world um, not uh, f for for what was I realized subsequent to you know the realize, realization I described um, compelling a compelling reason for a two year old right, right. Um, and yet um, it wasn't like um, oh I, I want to hide the fact that I have lust for so and so or you know um, that, boy I really want that new car. Um, and what a selfish asshole I am about that, you know, that, that sort of thing. So I guess I'm wanting to, wanting to f um, invite you to comment on, on the, the subtleties of some, of some of the ways in which, and reasons for which, we, we create a, um, a cramp around something that wouldn't be seen as one of the seven cardinal sins, which is essentially the list you were just you were just reciting there. Right. <laughs> it's not always about that sort of thing. Does that does that make sense to you? How, uh, I'm not I'm not sure. I can try and answer your question if it's if I'm going in a direction you didn't okay. intend, you can let me know. Yeah, but, yeah. Um so what were like the overarching theme to me of our conversation is the difference between being responsive and being reactive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a reaction is always a desire to head off a repeated experience of a previous wounding. Mm -hmm. So, and and as we all know, many of these wounds that have such um, create such a compel a, a compelling nature in terms of our wanting to avoid them, they mm -hmm. come early in life. Yeah. When we are not adapted, we are not capable of looking at the behavior of a parent or another adult that you know frightened us or shamed us, and just going, well, you know, they're just they were abused as a kid themselves and they're just passing along a pain that you know we can't cognize that way as a kid there's no buffer right. to contextualize what's coming at us and we think it's all us so the imprint of these experiences are very powerful they're they go in very deep mm -hmm. and then we grow up with this patterning which the, at the base of these experiences are, I will never let that happen again. That's mm -hmm. basically the decision we make mm -hmm. as a two-year-old or right. a five-year-old. And we're not saying that consciously, but that's what the machinery is doing. It's saying, right. okay, we're, we're now going to figure out how to never let that happen again. Okay. So we pattern after everything that's present in that moment where we experience the pain, 
and we are now hypersensitive unconsciously mm-hmm. and on the lookout for anything that comes close to this same mm-hmm. dynamic or situation and we avoid it or, or steer clear of it in the future mm-hmm. without knowing we're doing that. And as you said earlier, there are a numerable number of these old experiences. You know, some are were more dramatic and some are were quite were much more mild mm-hmm. in our formative years. Sure. But we have this whole little unconscious list of stop rules. It's a whole list of when this happens, when this kind of smell is in the air, when this kind of when the fall season hits I mean, we we link it up to all sorts of things that then creates this list of rules of places we can't go, things we can't do, people we can't engage with, Mm -hmm. and it's it's unconscious. Well, okay, so thank you for, 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 I mean, that was a very clear articulation, but you used one phrase, the smell. Okay, uh-huh. so here's so associated with this traumatic episode that I won't take the time to describe in full. Right, um, was the the resolution of where I got what I felt like I at fundamental level needed was associated with the fragrance of lilac, uh-huh. lilacs blooming outside the window uh-huh. of my parents' bedroom. Yes, and. And and that fragrance was, it, you know, it's like it automatically is a, a release of tension. Uh-huh. Even though moments before in that triggering experience um, at age two, there'd been the opposite, there'd been this incredible contraction and a, and a, and a, and a resolution not to um, seek attention that would create an obstacle to receiving that love in which I could relax and bask. So, um, so you know, I, I'm complicating the the picture that you're describing here, obviously, because because as I reflect on my own experience, it was complicated. It was complicated by the fact that, you know, when somehow lilacs uh, found their way into my yard here in the house that I've been living in for 30 years, I don't even I didn't plant them, right. but but somehow there were lilacs blooming, and then I smell that, and I am transported into the sense of being loved and safe in my mother's arms. Right. So. Um, so these these powerful experiences can have both um, positive and negative valences. For sure, for sure. And 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 that's just that was I think the, my impulse in bringing this, bringing this but, all up is to is to is to stress to people that there are different ways in which these um, contractions occur and different sides to them even almost Janus faced I want to add something to the story since I, we've talked about this story before that uh, the, the lilacs and the memory of your mother's love though also served as a kind of a buffer over the uh, ah, contraction and, okay. and you'd, you'd also enough, you've yes. articulated in the past that you've 
would often go back to that memory uh, and remember the love and the lilacs, but never get never the, the trigger. <laughs> yeah, but then, but then, or almost never the trigger. At one point, thing. you saw something underneath, which was a contractive experience of trying to make yourself small. You know, uh, so that so that I wouldn't be denied that. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, love and 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 relaxation. And so that's, and a good, that's a good point. And the reason I'm bringing that up is that it seems it seems to me that the we use avoidance and forgetfulness for the, mm. the traumas and we'll remember the positive things. And so the positive mm. things sort of circulate in this kind of larger picture of life and, you know, if we're lucky enough to have lots of positive memories, it's great. But all the traumas, as you said, hide under this uh, 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 mask of avoidance such that they mm. function, but we don't see their functioning because it's happening consciously. And because we gravitate towards comforts and the use of comforts mm-hmm. as, an, as another layer of buffer. We don't just avoid. Mm-hmm. We avoid and la- add a layer of thick, sweet icing on top in mm-hmm. the form of comforts, yeah. which is another step removed. And that's not to say we shouldn't. Obviously, you know, there are, there are wonderful associations with past memories that we can draw upon that give us true sense of sanctuary in our lives, of pleasure, of beauty, um, that's absolutely wonderful and appropriate. But when we habitually move towards particular comforts, and of course in our culture this is ubiquitous, foods, substances of all kinds, entertainment, distractions, of electronic distractions, all sorts of things we use mm-hmm. to comfort ourselves into a kind of a numbing um, from feeling what's underneath in mm-hmm. these, in, with these intrusive feelings that want to be resolved. They want to be in our attention. They want us to have a relationship with them, but we keep running away through these the comforting right. process. So, and that 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 speaks to a larger issue because when we um, uh, distract ourselves, that's usually a sign of uh, something pushing at the uh, periphery. Um, so, how do we train ourselves to uh, reduce the distraction? Conflict snacking. That's it's like. The, like I was saying earlier, conflict is a, is a protein source for attention. So um, being able to hold a sort of field attention in one's movement through life and to begin to be willing to recognize areas that where we don't want to go so again, to use your wonderful phrase, follow your dread, mm-hmm. to notice where we have a small amount of dread in engaging something or getting something done or communicating with a certain person or completing a certain task, just to start noticing where we are averse to being in relationship with things. Those are the things that a practitioner becomes very interested in exploring and moving toward to find out, okay, is there something here that I am uh, trying to steer around that's incomplete in my experience and that represents a 
limit that I hold myself for myself that removes me from being able to engage with life is that what's going on here with this particular person and and so we would explore that by moving toward a conversation or a person that we feel we would rather avoid we might not even know why mm-hmm. where we feel compelled to avoid it but a practitioner is very interested in discovering what is the base of that avoidance and perhaps we find out well I'm avoiding that person because they're simply toxic and it's not good for, you know it's not good for me you know that's good that's good for us to know and then it's just a wise choice to steer clear of that person but if we're avoiding that person because they're actually successful in some way that we want to be successful and it's threatening to us to see someone who's broken through in an area where we're um, not allowing ourselves to go because we can't receive attention or love or mm-hmm. for whatever reason, then that's a more interesting, that's something we want to know about. That's something that's of interest to, to discover. And so it's by, it's by this process of just biting off a little willingness to move towards these uncomfortable areas um, that provides us with a kind of, of fuel yeah. food that keeps us in the game, that keeps us in the growth game. Yeah, good. Uh-huh. Well, I was just going to say, um, I'm wondering about, um, in addition to the things that we, and people we might habitually avoid, what about the ones to whom and for whom and towards whom we are habitually drawn? And it seems to me that that's equally um, Interesting, from for just the same reasons that that, that you pointed to. Do you, do you agree with that formulation? And and how does it manifest in the the uh, in, in in this um, in this seeking um, productive stress contexts? In other words, if I'm drawn compulsively to a certain kind of person, what is it? about that type of person. What is it in me mm-hmm. that's being um, uh, drawn in that direction or towards a type of experience, for that matter? Well, they're not, they're not really opposites. They're two sides of the same coin of reaction. Right. Okay. Craving and aversion. Right. Um, in the Buddhist model, that's, yeah. it's when, when we notice craving or aversion, these are indications that there's something, uh, a defilement or an impurity in our, in our being that is pulling us out of the present moment and causing us to engage with a, a, some sort of fantasy, okay. either about the past or the future, that removes us from the playing field of being of service here and now. So, so the... Um uh, the fantasy might be fear and, and produce avoidance, or it might be a fantasy of, uh, of um, uh, receiving what you seek, even sure. though that person doesn't actually have a offer. Exactly, <laughs> and you know, or other or other things, experiences might not have that to offer. Well, I mean, this is all. This is all. The, the whole spiritual practice is just at one massive 
continuous distinction making process where you're needing to constantly make distinctions between things which we've conflated mm-hmm. and in our culture we have not been trained to make distinctions yeah. between lots of things like the distinction between emotions and feelings emotions being remembered feelings versus actual real feeling responses to something mm. that's in the present moment or there's all sorts of levels of distinctions to be made um, for a growing person and you know one of those distinctions are well maybe I'm there's a type of person that I'm drawn to that is actually um, the right kind of person for me to be with this is very nourishing for me and I actually enjoy being around these kind of people Mm -hmm. that it's true for all of us that there are people we're drawn to that are a kind of sanctuary for us kind of nourishing relationship and fuel that we we should be finding and allowing ourselves to connect with Mm -hmm. and there's a difference between that quality of attraction and a quality like fatal attraction, yeah. <laughs> where we're or even just compulsive attraction. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're drawn, and it, on the surface it would seem we're drawn in the same way, mm-hmm. but in actuality there's a big difference. Yeah, right. well, I mean, I mean, we see this playing out even in society at large with polarization of people and belief systems, and with the internet, where instead of occasions where people actually confront difference and have to resolve difference, um, you know, uh, now we create these separate communities of people who are in uh, violent agreement with each other and and then have, you know, uh, demonize other. And the the resolution of that, even from a, just like from a spiritual practice point of view, is putting yourself in situations where you're not comfortable, which means being present to like people who don't think the way you do, who That's don't right. uh, agree with you, who uh, uh, don't have the same assumptions you do, just so that you can both find common ground and uh, also be present to that uh, friction. Right. Like survival context is very black and white. It's either or. Yeah. And a, a context of service and responsiveness is pluralistic. It allows for it welcomes even disparate points of view and ideas and diversity is recognized as uh, an important component of an evolving system yeah so i wanted to you know just go back and make sure we emphasize this uh, incremental nature because i think that's a very powerful uh, part of what you're offering and what you've both written about and, and the work that you're coming forward with. So as we're saying, you know, the the incremental uh, nature of this work is important because um, like many things we have intuitive understanding about uh, when I exercise, if I want to do yoga, I can't expect to uh, if I haven't been doing it for a while, I can't expect to suddenly stretch like I remember stretching. I have to uh, uh, stretch a little bit each day. Or uh, when I uh, work in uh, uh, with a musical instrument, uh, I might be focusing with my teacher on the formation of a single note. 
and uh, before we even worry about uh, playing a whole piece. Mm-hmm. And and so it seems like the, that intuition and that understanding follows here, that we don't, you know, it isn't like suddenly you're going to snap your fingers and be enlightened in the way that we're describing. That that's right. a, that, But there is a progressive series of steps that are achievable and uh, not too discomforting, um, but discomforting enough that take us inexorably on this path. And I think you know, the, last night at your talk you were mentioning this notion which I, I, I'd like to bring up here and just have you elaborate a little bit in this spirit which is that there's a optimal amount of stress uh, under which we function really well. Mm-hmm. Too much and we don't function very well. Too mm-hmm. little and we don't function uh, so well. Can you talk about that notion a little bit and how that relates to taking on these bite-sized chunks of uh, uh, energetic moments of uh, eating? Yeah, sure. Um, so there's the, this was work that was done a few decades ago. Uh, two researchers, Dodson and Yerkes, they came up with something called the Dodson-Yerkes curve. And they did some testing. I think they did it with athletes and different performance environments with people demonstrating that um, small degrees of stress and pressure and challenges in certain circumstances actually were very useful in producing a more wanted result in, in different areas of human performance. And as they increased the range of stress, or maybe I don't know exactly how they did it, maybe they just were studying in natural environments, where, where when the stress, as the, as the curve of the stress increases, performance is enhanced up to a certain point. And then when you reach a certain point, if there's a degree of stress that's present, which is basically more than the organism can handle or digest, then performance plummets. It goes right off this cliff, and it's like, as we all, we've, and every person has had this experience when things just get too, too big, too hard, too, um, you know, emotionally taxing, we just, we crap out, we mm-hmm. collapse. And so the idea is that our systems are, can be trained, and there's a lot of research that demonstrates this. There was a whole thing that was done in Europe with policemen where they actually trained police to, in very small ways, like they put them in stressful circumstances where they had to perform um, duties that are um, correspond to what they would do, do in police duty. And they put them under small stressors and they would have to practice carrying out their duties and they found that even uh, a small amount of training these officers to engage with the presence of low-level stress made them much more responsive and competent even under high levels of stress on the job. So it's been shown that when we train ourselves to be able to stay present and stay effective under stress, we increase our capacity. So it's this, this curve is not a fixed curve. It can be anyone can train themselves to actually be able to digest and use 
greater and greater levels of stress, but you you have to start small. If you start with um, a, a great amount of stress or pressure right off the bat, you just haven't built the matrix internally to be able to digest and handle that that much energy. So always sort of keeping the uh, growing tip raw, as it were, is the uh, nature of this art, which is always a little bit of stress, a little bit of discomfort, um, keeps our ability to metabolize <laughs> what life presents to us uh, right. always kind of growing and being able to encompass greater and greater fields of experience. Yes. And, you know, obviously that's, it varies from person to person what the top end of that is. No matter how much training you do, there's going to come a point where, you know, um, you're going to you're going to hit a point where, and you begin to realize this in your own experience of yourself. Oh, if, if I go this far, that's not going to work. That's not going to help me to add more stress at at this point. But that's just the reason that I think you know, and I speak from personal experience here. Uh, people who, for example, go, uh, going to a gym uh, when you know my, my my experience is going to a gym for many years, and then. Um, getting the feedback of a personal trainer occasionally mm -hmm. can make a huge, huge difference, mm -hmm. you know, um, on a regular basis. The other point I want to make, um, let me get you to comment on, is, is that, you know, Stuart was, was saying the, 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 the growing tip raw all the time, and, but actually I don't think that's quite right because um, I think there needs to be healing. Because stress um, creates mild wounding, and then the organism has to heal itself. So, if we use the example of, of training muscles, mm -hmm. you know that's how that's how it works. You have to, right. you know, one day you're you're pushing, and the next day right. um, or two you're um, allowing the body to regrow the muscle just a little bit more than yep. than was there before. And I suspect that that's that's I, the I, same thing. I, I laugh because I, I I've been I was just listening to a podcast from some someone was talking about a, uh, a researcher on. Uh, 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 psychedelics, like, you know, in the pharmacological research now that's being used on psychedelics. And there's a thing that's very occurrent in Silicon Valley, which is microdosing, which is like taking uh, small amounts of uh, LSD, you right. know, and because it has small amounts, it creates an effect. So I'm just thinking that here we could call this whole process micro wounding. That, that we're uh, we're doing we're doing these uh, you know it's like uh, we're recapitulating in a sense the wounding that we receive but we're doing it uh, in small ways yes. such that we build this uh, just like with the muscle you're building this resiliency that um, uh, is difficult to build if you're suddenly just confronted like uh, uh, right yeah if, if just like if I go work my body really hard and then I, I'm going to feel. <laughs> I have no data though, about the uh, the microdosing. No, I don't either. Actually, I, have, I, have, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what that does, and I, I have I, no information about that. No, but I was just thinking of the catchphrase now that would get people's attention: micro wounding. Well, the the other argument for doing things in small doses, I mean, it's really interesting. You look at manifest world, that which is tangible in matter. It's durable and it's stable. It's designed to be. It's a durable and stable system. 
it's designed to pretty much things are you know wildly completely changing from moment to moment at the level of you know table and person and and so these durable and stable systems that's what we want when we think of change we want a different thing but once we get there we want that condition to be durable and stable mm-hmm, yeah. I say I want to be a kind person I'm not a kind person now I want to change I want to change right now so I want right now to be very fluid but once I get to be kind I'd like that to be very durable and stable yeah. so it's this dichotomy in our thinking where we go I'm, I'm unsatisfied with the way this is now and I want it to change right away so that when I get there I can keep that forever and we're not the human mind doesn't account for the fact that if we actually want a condition that's different and we want that to be durable and stable we have to deal with the fact that the approach to that change also has to be durable and stable which implicates us automatically in very slow incremental process where we're willing to you know that when we make a small change consistently slowly over time we can count on that change being stable in future yeah well uh, you're reminding me of um uh, I had to write a talk description, Stuart. I will give a talk at our bookstore um, next Thursday, and the subtitle is Awareness and Awarenessing. So the, the point is that people think of awareness as a thing, mm-hmm. and of course, it, uh, nothing could be further from the truth, but awarenessing implies that it's this ongoing project. Which um, or this ongoing activity and action, right. and um, and and I think this distinction you've just made is 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 really important because it's it is absolutely true that that the mind projects stability onto a desired goal, even though in this case it's a goal that literally cannot be named as a. Uh, as, as a, a, a stable thing to grasp, but I like I like the idea that I that I heard from what you just said of looking towards the project itself of moving in that direction as as being something that we can name, but in its nature is not um, fixed. Mm-hmm. Is is mutable? Is necessarily and desirably mutable? Mm-hmm. In fact, that's kind of cool. So yeah, the, the slowness of change is our ally because it protects the stability yeah. of our future desire. Yeah, and I like I like the uh, again. This is something you were saying last night that uh, really stuck with me. That um, as an organism, we can we can absorb small change. Uh, large change usually triggers uh, defensive reactions, yes. and so the art of transformation is the art of mastering the small change, mm-hmm. and uh, something that's very achievable. And it's really true in anything. I, I, I found this uh, powerfully with music, where 
I started a very difficult instrument uh, 20 years ago by committing to just try to blow air in it, uh, uh, you know, at least 10 minutes a day. But right. no, I didn't have to do any more than that. Yeah. And was able to keep that up, and you know that's transformed into a lifelong relationship with a uh, instrument and a teacher. That's uh, when I think back on that decision. Had I not made that decision, none of that whole this whole sector of my life would even be there. You know, this rich set of experiences, and yet it started with this commitment to just do a small thing. And it every wasn't day. one decision. You had to decide every, every day, day to redecide, to, to reaffirm to re, to yeah, that I, little bit. Yeah, and I think that's the uh, probably the point to sort of leave this since we're getting very close to the end here. Is that it's it's not just the decision every day. It's uh, uh, reinvoking you know the decision every day. It's like we have to keep that fresh too. Keep it fresh, keep it small, and then uh, uh, dramatic transformation is uh, available. So, so rather than you, we ending um, with I you was, having the last I word, just... uh, it's time to um, invite our guest <laughs> to and to tell people about how um, to contact your work, to interface, for example, with this. Um, weekly project. email project that you that you were talking about, and or any other uh, way to uh, um, access uh, what you're up to. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the way someone can get on the games, the weekly games, which is a uh, email that comes out every Monday, a short email with a this a small suggestion for an experiment to do. Um, the way they can get on that is by just going to gamesforconfidence.com, gamesforconfidence.com, and that goes right to a landing page that's actually on my speaker site now, but it's the sign-up form for Games for Confidence. So anyone who wants to, to get on that, it's free. Um, and I think there's, there's about 130 games on there now. I've been doing it for like two and a half years. So you just you can be on them as long as you want if they're paying off and you like them just stay on it you'll keep getting them um, and you can unsubscribe anytime and email addresses are not shared with anybody <laughs> so 130 games means there's at least uh, uh, almost three years of content there that's, if you're that's right. every week yeah. that's right and um, anyone who's on that thread will also event. There's there's no announcements on there now. All you get are the games. There's no advertising or being invited into anything else. Eventually, I'm going to have this uh, this new platform where people can actually work together uh, in groups and in forums, and that anyone who signs up to the list will be notified of that. Well, that sounds exciting. Excellent. Yeah, so that's that's a project I would really like to grow because it those games are precisely everything we've been talking about in terms of a very small incremental nature of finding these hidden little pockets that we can play with and experiment with to our benefit. Um, and I'd love I'd love to have more people in that uh, in that system experiencing that and because I get wonderful feedback from people like just amazing stories and replies of of the change that people are experiencing from participating in this this form of work and that's just very very fulfilling and 
Well, satisfying. That's really great. Well, we really appreciate uh, having this conversation and uh, uh, seeing you again and having the conversation in person because uh, this is, uh, I think, the first time we've recorded one in person. So yeah, the rain, been, the it's rain, it's fun. The rain, yeah. Play outside. Yeah. 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 So thank you again for appearing thank on you. Mystical Positivist. Thank you very much. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we have been speaking with Rick Lewis, author of Confident Under Pressure, The Hidden Advantages of Stress. Rick Lewis is a motivational speaker, thought leader, author, comedian, and entertainer par excellence who delivers a world-class presentation for meetings and events of all kinds. His latest book weaves colorful personal stories, recent neuroscience, the research of human performance experts, and the inspiration of leading business executives into a compelling and lucid argument for moving towards stress, conflict, and change in order to become more creative, effective, and happy in life on the way to making our highest contribution in the world. The result is an eminently readable and practical book that anyone can use at home, on the job, and in one-on-one relationships. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, Pimples on the Butt of the Absolute, Awareness and Awarenessing. That's with Rob Schmidt and Stuart Goodnick, your co-founders of Many Rivers Books and Tea and the Mystical Positivist Radio Show. That's Thursday, December 12th at 7.30 p.m., Many Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. In the contemporary spiritual scene, awareness can be as much a buzzword as mindfulness. Awareness derives from the concept of being watchful or vigilant. Thus, to beware, to be wary of something, implies guarding against the arrival of a potential danger. From this root, awareness is developed into the common idea of a mental status where one observes the inner and outer realms without any necessary object of awareness implied. But there is an unexamined assumption underlying this idea, which is that it is feasible to maintain a kind of vigilance as a more or less unitary ongoing state. In this talk, we examine this assumption. Can a state of vigilance or awareness ever be more than a string of unique moments that we retrospectively link together in the mind? When we watch a sunset, are we not awarenessing the rising and passing of discrete perceptions, emotional responses, bodily sensations, and thoughts? Is it possible to relax the flow of awarenessing such that serial fixation upon each unique pimple on the butt of the absolute gives way to something more like an appreciation of the contours of the overarching butt that graces the absolute. Robert Schmidt, Ph.D., and Stuart Goodnick helped found Many Rivers as a project of Taiyu Meditation Center, of which they co-direct. They host and produce the Mystical Positivist radio show, which features conversations with noted spiritual teachers, practitioners, and authors. They studied and practiced the alchemical transformation of consciousness for decades with Taiyu founder Robert Daniel Innes. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.